his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan, and thank you for joining us. And to those of you who join us on a weekly basis, a very big thank you. You also pass along the information to others. And I do get a lot of requests for certain interviews to be rebroadcast because of the fact that you believe the information just might help someone else. That's what this week's program is going to be. I have received some requests to have some of the interviews rerun, and I'd like to start today by bringing you the interview that we did with Diane Baldy from Hospice of the Sacred Heart. This time there is an update with the program. That's because the Luzerne County Sports Hall of Fame has gotten involved with Hospice of the Sacred Heart. The Luzerne County Sports Hall of Fame President Jim Martin got involved by reaching out to the community asking for slightly used communication devices such as phones and iPads. That way, their patients will be able to reach out to their family members who otherwise might not be able to come and visit them. They're still looking for those items, and you can find out more by contacting Luzerne County Sports Hall of Fame. And even if it needs a little bit of TLC to make it work, the organization will take those too. Right now, we're going to revisit Diane Baldy. She is the President CEO of Hospice of the Sacred Heart. How did Diane get involved? Well, I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse since 1983, and I've been doing hospice work since 1987 as a uh, registered nurse case manager, director of nurses, director of an inpatient unit. And 17 years ago this year, um, CEO of Hospice of the Sacred Heart. So it's been hospice for me for almost all my career. Hospice has changed a lot, the outlook of hospice. Mm What would you say if someone said to you, Diane, what is hospice? What does it mean? Well, that's a good question. I think um, what I do know is that hospice is a level of care, a certain part of the Medicare, uh, the Medicare benefit for, for one, but mostly at the healthcare system. It's for those patients who have, by their physician, been deemed to have a prognosis of six months or less. So it's a specialized care for those patients and their families. I never say patients without families because many of us know that when somebody in your home is sick, 
the whole family is sick. So families are dealing with this illness as well. So hospice is a specialized branch of medicine that deals with those patients uh, with a limited prognosis and gives them the best aspect of pain and symptom management, certainly the whole component of social work and spiritual counseling and volunteers that are available, as well as the medical management and the clinical management of the disease. Now, you said six months think it necessarily you can't put a time frame you can't and that's a very good point um, what our physicians certainly our medical director as well as the patient's attending physician what they declare is that the patient to the best of their knowledge can say that this prognosis may be limited to six months or less based on very clear guidelines through Medicare and medical assistance as well as the private insurers so they would look at a disease as Alzheimer's for example and say does this patient meet these criteria and they'd say, to the best of my ability and best of my knowledge, yes, they do. You mentioned families. Since so many things have changed, that in itself has changed. It's been a big change, especially over the course of my career in hospice. When I started in the late 80s, a lot of patients, families were still home. Women weren't in the workforce as much or, or vice versa. And so you see then they had the uprise of inpatient units you know, for maybe um, certainly it becomes short-term management, but it's as a place. And you see that a lot of caregivers aren't available. So that was really the big switch in hospice over the past 33 years that I can tell you that a lot of caregivers are just not available. People have to work, you know, and so that's why that's been a huge change. Like a respite care, Mm -hmm. but not for the patient. No, it's, um, there's a level of care in, under the hospice benefit through Medicare and also medical assistance that allows respite because if you are a caregiver, if you're, caregiver, if you're a full-time caregiver, even a part-time, it's exhausting work, not only mentally, physically, but emotionally exhausting. So there's a, up to five days on a level of care that's known as a respite that a patient would be transferred to an inpatient facility or someplace that the hospice has a contract with and therefore, it's a rest for the patient's caregivers or their family or friends. Mm-mm. It doesn't mean that things are ending. It doesn't. It's Not just something. All. And if you haven't experienced it, then you yeah. probably can't appreciate it. Truly. And it's and the patient is in great hands, as well as the caregivers kind of getting that revival that they need. Where did Hospice of the Sacred Heart come from? Well, it's it's a, kind of a little bit of a long story, so if you bear with me, um, it'll be 17 years ago this year. I had been working at another hospice in the area for a very long time, and I got a phone call one evening from uh, a physician. I didn't know. My kids are still home. You know, they were doing their homework at the table. I was getting dinner ready, and they said, Mom, there's a Dr. Bucci on the phone. And I live in Scranton, so I didn't know who he was. And I thought, oh, gosh, was there something I forgot to do with the inpatient unit? Was he, was he angry? Is he upset? So I called him. He says, you don't know who I am. He said, I'm Dr. Bucci, an ophthalmologist in Wilkes-Barre. And your name was given to me by someone who thinks that you might be able to start a hospice for me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, doctor, <laughs> I thank you, but I'm not sure who gave you this call. And I'm really very happy where I am right now. He said, please just do me the justice. If you hear my story and change your mind, then we'll, that'll be okay. I said, well, okay, I'll be happy to. I said, when? He said, tonight. He said, I'll come to Scranton. I'll meet with you. So cut to the chase a little bit. Um, so what had happened six months before me meeting Dr. Bucci, his wife of 22 years had died suddenly. Mm. And he and his wife every January went to Hawaii for two weeks. One week was for his um, conference for ophthalmology, and the second week was their family vacation. So he was only going to go that six months later after she had died, uh, his wife Angie. 
He was going to go just to the conference and not to Hawaii because he just couldn't be there without her. He was truly and still remains quite devastated by her loss. And so he said to his staff, give me, you know, I'd like to go to a retreat. His son lived in California. I'll stop and see John, and then we'll, uh, I'll go on that retreat. So he said to his staff, but I really would like to start a hospice in Angie's honor. So while I'm gone, see if you can find someone who might be interested in starting it for wow. me. So he does the Hawaii conference, and he goes to California, and he's telling me this. Now, Paul, I've never met the man before, and he said that when I was on my retreat, I was walking. He said, and all of a sudden, I had this incredible feeling as I was walking along the base of Mount Baldy that they would have found someone who's going to start the hospice for me. Oh, wait a minute now. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so it gets better. So he said, I came back, and I came back to my office in Wilkes-Barre, and one of the nurses came running up to me, and she said, Doctor, I think I might know the name of somebody who could start the hospice for you. He said, what did I tell you? I knew it was going to happen. I was walking along the base of Mount Baldy. With that, her, she goes white and pulls my name out of a piece of paper. Um, it was a nurse who I had worked with many years ago at Mercy Hospital in Scranton, knew I was doing hospice work and just thought it was worth a shot. So six weeks maybe in, in agonizing um, and seeing, you know, all those different decisions, um, I decided to take the leap. How um, could you not? Well, I know. You, you don't test fate, right, Paul? <laughs> really? Absolutely. And a good friend of mine had said to me, um, you know, if you... In 10 years from now, would you regret not making the decision? And, and so it's that's been how many? 17. <laughs> 17. So you haven't been. And, and where did Sacred Heart come in? Uh, Dr. Bucci um, has a great devotion to the Sacred Heart, as did his wife. So that's where the name came from. And it's. Uh, it's worked for us for very well, and it, most of us all do. That is one incredible story, and it started 17 years ago. 17 years ago, I had a little office. I was there for about six to eight months by myself, just doing the policies, procedures, all those necessary legal things to start a program. And then um, the interest, well, there's so many interesting parts of it, but then groups of us came together. Then there was five of us, and we were able to do all the documentation required, and then we had um, we were certified um, by Medicare, and then for the first year our census was like one, maybe three, <gasps> maybe two. So later on that August, after we received certification, Dr. Bucci calls me again and on a Sunday, and he said, how about you come down and meet me for lunch? <laughs> and I said to my husband, he's going to close. I understand, because at that same time, Dr. Bucci was paying all our salaries. Um, out of the goodness of his heart, and he said, I'm never going to close. He said, I know that's why you think I called you down here, but I want you to believe is that someday we are going to do very well, but you have to never, ever forget what it was like to have a census of two. Things came together. The stars aligned. And where are you today? Our, well, we have three locations. Our main office is in Wilkes-Barre. Uh, we have a Center for Education on Montage Mountain Road. We have about five people who were office there. And then we have our inpatient unit in Dunmore, um, which is a 10-bed inpatient unit. If it was anything else but hospice, it wouldn't have the same kind of feeling. It's true. And it is because of the level of how we reach people, um, both patients and their families, um, and then how a, a team can come together. And hospice is really meant to be team. And so it all comes together. And what a great privilege it has been for all these years. Why do you suppose that people don't investigate hospice? And I'm going to throw out the term palliative care. Mm -hmm. Because that's something that now seems to be one of the new buzzwords. It has, you're, you're right, it has been. I think 
even, you know, all these years later, 33 years later, patients and their families are terrified of the word hospice. We call it the H word because they think it's it's a bad word because they believe that it's, you know, patients are going to die right away within three days and that's it. It truly is not meant to be because six months is a very long time. And in those six months, um, if the patient continues to decline or still show symptoms, they can be recertified again. So six months, you know, it's a very clear process of how that happens if patients can stay on. So I think patients and families and sometimes the medical community don't have a true understanding. So investigation is a good word to use. Palliative care, and this is just my own opinion, I I strongly believe palliative care and hospice care have the same components. Um, Certainly that team approach, those cores, team, you know, the nurse, the physician, the social worker, the counselor, the pastoral care is a huge part of it. But um, palliative care and hospice probably end um, when the six months comes. So the truth be told, when a patient is diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, palliative care should start that day and then work in tandem with hospice care. Um, I think palliative care may be an easier term to use with patients and families who are terrified of the hospice or are terrified of a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where they, you know, they run up to an end and then it becomes all, it should become all hospice at that point. The other question a lot of people ask is, let's say you have an incident at home and an ambulance takes you to the hospital. How does the hospital work with hospice? Well, hospice works that if we receive a referral from a physician, and we whether the patient is at home or in a long-term care facility, um, our admissions team goes out, does the evaluation. They ask the questions. They already have um, the physician's order. So they kind of do the, the background check to see if this patient, when they report back to the medical director, is acceptable and um, able to be on hospice care. So then it is assigned to a case manager, registered nurse, who then goes out and she determines or he determines what services the family and the patient requires, how many visits, whether they be for personal care, for skilled visits, if the volunteer is um, would be helpful, then they determine that with the team. Every one of our patients in any hospice is reviewed every 15 days with all those four core fields, um, core positions um, present. Another myth I think about hospice that you have to have a do not resuscitate. That is not true for, I can speak for hospice of the Sacred Heart because that's a big decision. Mm-hmm. The only place for us it's true is for an inpatient unit because we don't have a crash cart. So we would say, you know, there's two hospitals in that area. If you choose that, then you would have to go be discharged from here. So the patient, that's up to the patient and That's the completely up to the patient and family. So Correct. just because you say hospice doesn't mean... Right. Okay. Correct. And that's a decision, again, speaking for hospice of the Sacred Heart that you would make. That's why a social worker comes in and a counselor comes in and sits down with a patient and family and they're able to discuss these um, decisions, these big decisions. So in terms of an ambulance, we certainly talk to our families and so we have that, that difficult conversation you know, about the resuscitation, um, the five wishes. Um, and yeah, we have to talk about We're going to talk about five yeah. wishes, which is a great topic. And when the family and the patient have decided this is what we're going to do, we can tell them that we're 24 hours, seven day a week service. If there's a problem and you think it's something we can handle, call us. We'll get somebody out there as quickly as possible to probably avert a hospitalization. Sometimes you cannot. So the hospitals work. We let the hospitals know that this is a hospice patient. Our staff follow up in the hospital and certainly help with the discharge planning either back to home or back to a facility. Hospice, you have to meet a certain criteria. Right. 
And if you, as you said, the DNR order, the do not resuscitate, what happens then if a family decides, if the patient decides that maybe I want to do that, then what happens to their relationship with hospice? Because you're kind of going above and beyond what, as you said, you don't have a crash card. Right. Talk about the inpatient unit. If anybody, and when that's something that's known to everybody through documentation, whether this patient chooses resuscitation or chooses not to be resuscitated. So we have that uh, discussion up front, clearly discussed as well as documented about the ambulance. If a patient does decide to forego the DNR, can they get back into hospice? Oh, of course, yes, you can get back in, certainly with a physician's order and the consultation with, uh, strongly encourage the attending physician, who most likely has known that patient for a very long time. Mm-hmm. We will certainly want to keep them involved as well. And the patient remains in charge where the patient and family should remain in charge of their care. Patients change their mind all the time, you know, and certainly with hopefully investigation or discussion with family members. And that's our, what's one of our roles there is to help foster that communication and make it clearer and so everybody's on the same page in terms of the patient and family's care. There are things that are life-sustaining mm-hmm. and as you mentioned in the very beginning, hospice is to control, to help ease, to help facilitate. If you are on medications mm-hmm and different things that might be life-sustaining. How does that all work into it? Well, maybe I guess the best example may be um, a peg tube or a tube feeding. That might be a great example. If the patient has one, certainly that discussion, you know, takes place. Is this something you would like to continue? You know, do a benefits and burdens type conversation about that. Certainly when in conjunction with the attending or the family physician as well as the medical director, and then this is what the patient has wanted. The patient and family are in the driver's seat, you know, and they're the core. Actually, they're at the head of the table um, at an inter- interdisciplinary meeting. So the patient and family would understand that, that this being discussed, and we accept that. Let's talk a little bit about the five wishes. Now, first of all, explain to us what that would be in the term of medical The Five Wishes is a terrific document. Um, We started using it at Hospice of the Sacred Heart in in terms of all our patients, all our new patients. But it's not just for you. No, no, no. It is not just for us. It's for anybody. Um, And it's uh, it's a wonderful document that um, actually, uh, I believe he was a social worker who worked in a hospice, decided that he was having deeper conversations with patients and their families regarding their last wishes. Um, We know it commonly as... um, what our rights are in terms of what our resuscitation rights are, what we want, what we don't want. Advanced our advanced directives. directives is basically what it is, and which is something you can run offline, and it's a pretty cold, stark document. And so the five wishes makes it more um, personal, and I think that's the best way I can describe it. They ask the patient in conjunction with the family. It kind of starts that conversation that we all shy away from because it's a very difficult conversation. So what we do, what the five wishes does is say, this is who I want from my physician. This is who I want with me. This is what I want if I should become incapacitated. I can't make it my own decisions. For example, I want music playing. I want my family here. I was amazed at that. I don't want a hospital bed. Yeah. This is what I'd like in my funeral. I mean, so it... it makes it easier. We've had since uh, very many instances where the patient family say, you do this part and I'll do this part and we'll come together and have that conversation. So it's, it's very clear. It is a legal document. 
Um, and we strongly suggest if anybody's using them to certainly have a copy, let your physicians know, uh, be aware of it. And we want, we're there to honor it. We're there to protect it for you and to help you live by it. So it's back to the conversation that, you know, we just passed the holidays and we strongly have always encouraged families to, this is a good time. Family isn't from out of town. This is a great time to at least, if you haven't done it, to sit down as a group and do it. And then also um, to do it privately and then share that information. And you said it is a legal it document. It is a legal document. It doesn't have to be notarized. It does not have to be notarized, not in Pennsylvania. And actually, um, if you're, and I know you're familiar with it, Paula, there's a little card that mm-hmm. says, I have, you know, five wishes. And it is, it's, it's a terrific document that is so personalized. It's not that cold document. I do not want resuscitation. I don't want two feedings, you know. No gray oh, areas. No in gray that at areas, all. exactly. Mm-hmm. And it makes it easier for families. There's nothing worse, I believe, than in the hospital and you're having those, you know, those hallway conversations, you know, and all of a sudden you don't know what to do. And you, you, the person, um, your family member who is the patient and can't um, speak for themselves, I don't know what they want because we never talked about it. So right. this strongly encourages it. And the other thing when it comes to that, uh, as we said, it's not just for the Hospice of the Sacred Heart. Right. You can get these you can get it online? We can get it online, and I think it's a dollar for a copy or something like that. But if you certainly look at it, and it kind of gives, it definitely gives you the idea of what questions to ask and how to make that clear, especially if you're the patient for your family and loved ones. Mm-hmm. Because again, like an advanced directive, it only comes into play if you're unable to make decisions for yourself, if you're incapacitated. And you can also give other things. There are, there's space where you can go in and you can say, Unless this or because of that. I want this. Everything is covered. Um, And all possible scenarios down to your obituary and, you know, um, people you want um, near you and by you and how you want the room set up or not. And it's it just has such a great sense of peace, I think, for families and patients. And I think a lot of times, too, people don't think about those things. It's unpleasant, I think, or it's hurtful to think about it. And again especially during the holidays or certainly anniversaries. Like I said, you don't want that hallway conversation in a hospital or a doctor's office because you're just not prepared. So Mm -hmm. I think um, the one true thing is that we all know it's going to be our time soon. So um, we try to do it once a year, even for our staff, just to, because we were doing it all the time for patients and families, make sure you have your own. Oh, but that's very true mm-hmm. as well, because again, mm-hmm. it starts, It the right. biggest thing it does is it starts a discussion, mm-hmm. and sometimes, now that would be something that I also ask about hospice today, as opposed to hospice then, um, even 17 years doesn't seem like a long no. time, but a lot of things have changed, right. and as someone who is involved in hospice and has been involved in this what would you suggest or how would you suggest someone who maybe is hearing this for the first time and saying, you know, maybe we should do, how do you broach something like that? Well, we, we do get those questions a lot because families and patients are very concerned, whether it's been for a very um, life-limiting illness or diagnosis has just come. And now I use the example Alzheimer's and because I think the other myth to dispel is that the public, I think for the most part, even after all these years that hospice has been around since the early 80s, um, believe that it's all patients have to have cancer. And that is not the truth. 
um, cardiac disease, certainly um, end-stage neurological diseases, Parkinson's, um, but Alzheimer's is kind of easy to say because the cancer is a little bit more easy to prognosticate. Not always, but for the most part it is. These other diagnoses are not. So my, my best suggestion to everybody, you said the word, investigate. Do your homework. Um, so, for example, if you have a patient or somebody that you love who may be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, some of the criteria for that to make them eligible now for hospice care would be that the patient has lost the ability to smile, the patient may be incontinent of, of bowel and bladder, the patient, uh, their vocabulary is limited to six words or less, they are bedbound, they require full assistance with all their activities of daily living, you know, cooking, bathing, washing. So those patients do meet the criteria for hospice care. If that belongs, those criteria belong to somebody that you know, certainly call your physician, then have them reach out. Because again, which is a wonderful thing now, patients are in the driver's seat. We get to make those decisions for ourselves. And I think that's probably the best way I approach it. I actually always have the criteria with me for all the other diagnoses to say, before I go and talk to somebody, yes, they they do qualify or they don't qualify, but here are some other options of care. Now, before we let you go today, what are some of the other myths that maybe you have come across that you'd like to be able to say, oh, and by the way. Right. I I think it's probably not only is it, you know, um, how hospice responds and how hospice only comes, you know, three days before a patient is going to die. That's not always the truth. And I think we're not emergency medicine. So I think we do our best work when we're involved earlier uh, that hospice is truly about pain and symptom management. One of the myths is that we give morphine to everybody. <laughs> that is not the case. Um, we do not do that. And that um, our patient, our staff are so clinically sound and compassionate in every single way and dedicated certainly to the mission of hospice as well as to the place where they work. So I think the best advice to dispel those myths is to do your research, to do your homework and find out exactly what hospice is. Call. I'd be more than happy to help at any given time. Um, as well as our admissions team or anybody in the office would be happy to help. Talk, reach out to somebody you know who's using hospice care. See what their experience has been. Again, it's for the whole, um, the whole patient and family unit. Um, and we do personal care. We do um, vital signs. We do blood work. We do IVs. We do all those things. But our biggest um, efforts are always to provide comfort, care, hope, and choice to patients while getting them and their families through the end-of-life journey. So that uh, the myths still remain, but I'm still here all these years later to dispel them. How can people get in touch with you if they would like to start investigating? Oh, certainly. And I can certainly give you the correct websites and, and resources to look for. Um, my email address is dbaldi. Um, B-A-L-D-I at hospicesacredheart.org and certainly you can call the office they have a great way of tracking me down at 570-706-2400 Thanks once again to Diane Baldy Hospice of the Sacred Heart and of course you can get involved by donating your old smartphones tablets and other electronics to the patients in hospice care so that during the coronavirus pandemic and after they have an opportunity to speak with loved ones. Luzerne County Sports Hall of Fame is spearheading 
that operation, and if you would like more information, you can contact them online at Luzerne County Sports Hall of Fame.com. Now, don't go away. When we come back, a very popular lady telling us about getting back to doing hair. Don't go away. Barbara Stemple, next on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagman, and once again, thank you for joining us. And I especially like to thank those people who join us just about every week because you get the word out about different interviews that you've heard here on our program, and that's why you've inspired today's program. I've been able to go through some of the requests about information from the interviews and thought, well, what better way to do that than to bring some of them back to you. This one actually just aired last week here on Special Edition. She's a popular lady and certainly hit a soft spot with a lot of our listeners. Barbara Stemple, she's a hairdresser in the Whitehaven area And with the help from our friends at WYLN-TV, I was able to catch up with Barbara and, on TV, take you into her shop, but hopefully here on radio, be able to paint a picture of what it's like going to the hairdresser in COVID-19 time. It's a little bit different getting your hair cut with a mask on. Barbara, how have you been handling all this? Well, it's been a little bit of a challenge, but you've got to get through it. You want to keep your clients safe, and you want to protect yourself, so it's an adjustment, but I guess we'll have to make it through. What are some of the adjustments that you've had to make so far? Well, only having one client at a time is a little rough, trying to figure your scheduling, because you have to make enough time in between had sanitized things, art combs, brushes, but we never had to do what we have to do now. When all of this started, about how many clients would you say you had to reschedule? About since? 50. 50? Yep. So how do you do that? Because anybody who knows, it takes a while to get a perm, it takes a while to get color. So that has all had to change, and you are here in the shop by yourself because you're doing this out of, out of your own shop. Yes, and it's not easy because you have to call them. First of all, we didn't know when we were able to open. We found out like a week before. We were watching the TV, and we figured we'd be right after Carbon County. And then on a Monday, right before we opened, that Friday, they gave us the rules and regulations. So then you get on the phone and start calling everybody. And those that you couldn't get, you'd have to have them call you back. So it's been a little challenging trying to call everybody within a week to get some scheduled. And, and uh, we have to work longer hours because we can't do as many people as we used to do with social distancing and only having one client per stylist. So if, if I was in here getting a color right now, let's say, and somebody else wanted to come in for a cut, you wouldn't even be able to let them come in? No. And I always worked on appointments only. And now 
um, some places that had walk-ins, they're not allowed to take a walk-in. You have to call and make your appointment. You have to make sure nobody else is in here. And then you have to have them either wait in their car or have somewhere. And if, if you have a place outside for them to sit, then you have to go and sanitize it before the next person comes. Were there other things that you had to purchase before you could reopen? Yes, I had to. I purchased um, throwaway capes for all my chemical services because the other plastic ones, they take so long when you wash them to dry them. You wash them five times, they fall apart. So one of uh, my friends in Wilkes-Barre, they said that there was a place where you could get the plastic and throwaway. So I did buy them and I found out they worked pretty good. So I ordered a lot more because I was afraid that they would sell out and I wouldn't be able to get them. So I ordered a hundred more and hopefully they'll last me a little while. <laughs> How has it been, because again, I know just knowing you, it's always a good time to come in here and find out what's going on and to chat and... Well, and now you have to rush the person out of here. You, you, because uh, you need to take a breather in between to take your mask off. And then you feel terrible because all my clients are mostly friends also because I've been doing it over 30 years and now you can't give them a cup of coffee if they're sitting here with a chemical service because they can't take their mask off. And when we're talking about people coming back, how have you been dealing with those who have quarantine hair and have been attempting to do it on their own? <laughs> well, thank goodness I didn't get any corrective colors yet. <laughs> a couple of my clients called and asked what kind of box color should they buy because they didn't want to mess up their hair. And some of them, they just said, the heck with it. They put on headbands or a hat. So it hasn't been too bad. What about corrective cuts? <laughs> Well, that's a little challenging, especially if they took a chunk out, because then they'd say they couldn't get their sideburns right, so they just cut it off, and, and uh, it, it, you work with it. So what do you have to say now to all the people who are starting to come back and who are, you know, because I know you have been very cautious, and you continue to be very cautious. Yes. Well, you just have to tell them when you call for their appointment, tell them make sure they wear a mask. I have signs on my doors, and if they don't go to the sanitizer, I go to them. And uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit challenging because so far nobody has complained about the mask, but they said, how do you cut around my ears? I said, well, then you hold the mask on your face and we take <laughs> unhook it. So... And that's what it's all been about. Yeah. Just the whole idea of being able to make it work because, well, that's what we have to do in this day and age. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Again, thanks to Barbara Stemple for allowing us into her shop and, of course, with the help from our friends at WYLN-TV to find out about getting our hair done with our masks on in COVID-19. Some members of our intercom family also find someone interesting to talk with, and they like to share them with me, so I, in turn, can share them with you. One such interview was with Donna Siriani, and intercom's Doc Medic talked to Donna about going back to work again during the coronavirus pandemic. That generated a lot of attention, so once again, here's Doc with Donna. 
Jesse just came back for almost three months, I guess, or maybe even a little over. She was working from her home doing the show there. And um, last week was her first week here back in the studio. And it's a whole different animal. Like, we have plexiglass up between us and different rules about different parts. But here at the radio station, outside of um, who you hear on the radio, most of the staff behind the scenes are not here and working from their homes. And on with us now, Donna Siriani, who has a company called MovingForwardSeminars.com. And Donna, some people will be going back into the workplace. Some people nervous about it. What should they be expecting? Thank you, Doc. That's a a great question. Um, A lot of people are reopening right now and going back to work. And I think that people are very concerned about the safety, about staying six feet apart and and social distancing and the mask wearing, which is very important. But I also think it's really important besides your workspace that your headspace is back to work, you know? Because we've all gone through these crazy times and now we're like going from a place of uncertainty and we want to get back to certainty and feel good about going back to work. So I think there's like three areas in your mindset that it's important to address. So number one, address your fears. Find out the bathrooms, the building entrances, the safety um, that's there. Is there, uh, you know, do you wear a mask? Um, are you able to wash your hands? What, what are the things as far right. as safety that's, that you can make sure is intact? In number two, is addressing your morale. So it's important to reconnect with everybody after we've been gone for so long, you know, and now we're seeing people face to face again. So after being in isolation, just connect with people in the office and, and ask them about their experience, what they've gone through, what's their thoughts. And that's a really, really important thing. Lastly, um, what you can do as far as mindset is find purpose in your work again. You know, get yourself motivated again. And, you know, for so long, we haven't had really set goals because everything's been up in the air. But now that you're coming back to work, find daily goals that you can create and find weekly goals, create them and do them. And it gives you something to work toward and it gives you a little bit more certainty, which will ultimately make you feel better. My son works in Philadelphia and they're going through all, and, and right. I mean, it's a huge company, so they're dividing it up. They're actually doing teams and they went with colors. So the green team actually will be in this week and then the red team in next week. Right. Um, do you see a lot of that happening in businesses across the country? Yeah, I mean, people are, some people, they're kind of breaking up their um, employees when they come into work, like you just said, to kind mm-hmm. of minimize crowding in the office space, which I think is good for right now. Let me ask you this, Don. A lot of uh, parents who are listening right now who have kids that would be daycare. In fact, a lot of people, are they worried about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's real, that's really a common concern is child care. So, I mean, what you have to do with that is you have to feel comfortable, you know, talk with the owner of the, of the daycare right. facility and make sure they're doing the right thing. See if they have cameras that maybe you could check in so that way you feel a little bit more at ease where, you know, you can see your child there. Mm-hmm. But it's really up to you to talk with the owners and to make sure that they're abiding by the guidelines and there's a way that you could connect with them or even see a child throughout the day, like I said, possibly with a camera give you a little more peace of mind. Donna, for people that want to follow you, get more information, how do they do that? My website is movingforwardseminars.com. I do go into companies and help them with the mindset of employees after COVID. So if you work at a company and this is something that you feel you want to have in, I'd be happy to talk with you. And I also do one-on-ones as well. People just getting their life back on track after all this and getting their mindset in the right place. So I'm happy to help. Well, Donna, thank you so much for giving us time this morning. I appreciate it. You are so welcome. We're going to all get through this. We're going to be okay. Thanks again to Doc Medic and Donna Siriani for being part of Special Edition today. And just a little bit more of behind the scenes. That's one of the reasons why I'm running this program today, so you have an opportunity to get to hear some of the interviews that you had requested. 
because you thought that they not only helped you, but would help others. And again, behind the scenes, I've been working from home as well since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic back in March, putting together this program and being able to work with our other members of our intercom family in getting you the information that you need to know. And today, we're not done yet. We're going to be hearing from Dr. Gad Marshall. We interviewed Dr. Gad Marshall not too long ago and talked about Alzheimer's disease. This, another interview which hit home for many of our special edition listeners. So when we come back, we'll hear from Dr. Marshall on special edition. And once again, welcome back to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, I have been bringing back some of the interviews that have aired in the past that you have requested be heard again. That's because they not only helped you, but you thought that maybe they would help others who might not have heard it the first time around. This interview aired not too long ago with Dr. Gad Marshall. Dr. Marshall talks about a research project that he's involved with that will hopefully bring about a cure to Alzheimer's disease, something that many of our listeners felt that they could relate to as well as would help others. Well, so uh, Alzheimer's disease is unfortunately an epidemic. I know we're dealing with a different pandemic with COVID-19, but Alzheimer's disease has has, uh, been an epidemic across the world in the U.S. Uh, as well as uh, in uh, uh, our, our local uh, state of Pennsylvania for uh, many years now. Um, what we see is uh, as you age, uh, there is a certain segment of the population that's at greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. There are changes in the brain that we can track. Uh, there are clinical symptoms uh, such as memory decline, uh, language difficulties, sense of direction difficulties, uh, changes in mood and behavior. Uh, and ultimately decline in your daily functioning uh, that progresses with time. This is an irreversible, uh, continuous um, uh, um, neurodegenerative disease. Um, and in recent years, we focused on early detection of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and this will give me the opportunity to discuss uh, a new web study uh, that we're, we launched about a year ago. When you talk about early detection, that must be something that's very difficult because it can mimic so many other disorders that, that people 65 and older are dealing with. Absolutely. So uh, when you age, uh, you know, you can have uh, uh, changes in your memory and thinking uh, abilities uh, for many reasons, uh, including just getting older. Uh, and so uh, trying to uh, separate that uh, type of change uh, from uh, a, a disease like Alzheimer's disease is important uh, in terms of uh, whether or not uh, we should be uh, concerned about uh, more aggressive decline down the road and what we can do about it. And so um, what we're offering uh, today uh, is a web study called uh, APT or APT Web Study uh, found on aptwebstudy.org, which is a national effort funded by the NIH uh, to uh, detect the earliest uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease uh, with a simple computerized assessment you can take from the comfort of your home. Uh, all you need is a computer or a tablet connected to the, to the Internet. We're looking for individuals uh, age 50 or older who do not have significant symptoms yet. Uh, and so uh, we can track you over time uh, with uh, a 20-minute type of uh, memory test every three months and let you know if, in fact, you are declining. And if so, 
what you can do about it, uh, either in a clinical setting or in another research setting, such as a prevention trial for Alzheimer's disease. Again, it can mimic so many other things. Are there what you would consider classic Alzheimer's symptoms? Yeah. So, so um, Alzheimer's disease, uh, as you said, classically would present as a consistent decline in your short-term memory, uh, also some language changes early on, such as word-finding difficulties, uh, changes in your sense of direction, uh, and also changes in your mood uh, early on, such as mild depressive symptoms, anxiety, lack of motivation, irritability. Um, early on, we usually uh, don't see decline in daily functioning. Uh, that is something that we see usually when you hit the stage of dementia. Uh, the key is that there's a change from your prior abilities and that it is a consistent change, not just one day that something happens and then you're back to normal. And as far as the study is concerned, then you're looking for people at the age of 50? Yeah, so we're looking for people who are much younger uh, than the typical uh, onset of Alzheimer's disease. So the typical onset in the U.S. is early 70s for the stage of dementia. Uh, for milder memory symptoms, uh, it will be late 60s. We're looking for people uh, who uh, are uh, you know, way uh, younger than that in terms of uh, potentially having a risk um, that's biological or genetic risk uh, in their family uh, and we're, we're looking for the very earliest uh, changes in their memory performance that they might not be aware of, that we can detect with, with these sensitive uh, computer tests uh, over time. Uh, and then uh, if, if we do detect a change, uh, we could recommend uh, that uh, either if it's a significant change, they uh, seek clinical care or uh, they participate in a research study to uh, have more assessments uh, with scans of their brain, say, or, or in fact uh, participate in a trial where we're testing a new drug to prevent Alzheimer's disease in people who do not have significant symptoms yet, but may be at risk. That's another interesting question because there is really no, there's no cure for Alzheimer's, but, and there are drugs now that are, that are going to start to be investigated, well, cure it, or would that just slow it down? There is no cure. The treatments that we have available currently uh, are uh, used at the stage of dementia only, not prior to that, uh, to uh, mildly boost your, your symptoms, uh, uh, improve them for 6 or 12 months, and then they wear off. What we're looking for uh, is uh, uh, medications uh, or interventions that will uh, at least slow the decline over time uh, and, of course, preferably stop it um, altogether, uh, which would be a cure uh, that, you know, we will settle for significantly slowing the decline. If you do that for several years, you can really uh, change the quality of life of older adults. Um, and so uh, that's what we're looking for. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been doing these type of clinical trials for years, uh, and uh, we've been moving to earlier stages in hopes of, of having more success. When you also mentioned genetics in there, if um, if a person has had a family member uh, are you able to tell by the study that you're starting, the, the APT study, that um, there might be a predisposition or maybe there's not a predisposition? Is it more possible that there could be something environmental? Well, so we try and take into account uh, several of these factors. Uh, uh, this particular study is pretty streamlined, so we, we can't be exhaustive, and, and all of it is based on answering questions online, and so we're not doing any 
uh, uh, blood tests or scans of your brain with this particular study, uh, but we try and uh, get demographic information and family history information uh, and also uh, some medical history uh, in order to uh, figure out some of your risk factors. And, and yes, you could have uh, a family history or genetic risk factor. You could have a risk factor from various common medical conditions like elevated blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, and in fact from stressors from the environment uh, uh, or your, your life generally. Uh, say uh, you're a caregiver, you can um, be st- stressed from that. Say uh, you have uh, you know mood disorder, that could be a stressor. Uh, your diet and exercise uh, can be- uh, beneficially or uh, detrimentally affect uh, your risk. And so uh, these are various things we look at as well. Dr. Marshall, this is fascinating. And uh, again, the uh, Alzheimer prevention trials, how can people get involved? Where can they find the information? Well, so uh, it's very simple. You just log on to our website, aptwebstudy.org. Uh, you learn about uh, the study, and then if you're interested, uh, you can sign up right there and then and get started. Dr. Marshall, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully in the future you'll be able to come back and we'll talk about uh, what you've been finding out as far as the, uh, the trials are concerned. Thank you for your time and for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.